In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. We read the Bible as a story or a narrative. The themes of the story are meant to inform and govern our stories. This stands in opposition to reading the Bible as a series of verses to sort of wrench out of their context and apply to our lives in ways that are convenient for us. Connecting the biblical stories to our story takes work to do it faithfully. It takes a work of of prayer, contemplation, of meditation, and having God speak to us to let us know how this speaks to our lives in consistent and faithful ways. Today's gospel is the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem for the last time. It comes on the heels of the Palm Sunday story. Just after the crowds have said to Jesus, or of Jesus, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Jesus stopped and wept over the city. He didn't believe a word of it. He knew he had come to to die, to be killed by them, or to be killed by their leaders with their silence or assent. But he was doing this so that they could be forgiven for this sin and for all sin. As he would say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. However, to receive forgiveness, one must repent. And not everyone in Jerusalem was going to repent. When people persevere in their rejection of God's love and grace, their lack of faith becomes a hardened attitude, a stony heart in which the life of God cannot take root, cannot grow, and cannot produce fruit. God is long-suffering and merciful, but there comes a time when it's too late. Thus Jesus wept over the city. He didn't weep over the city the way a northern European or a New Englander weeps. He wept the way a Middle Eastern man weeps. He created a huge scene. He wailed and lamented the city. He mourned the fate that was coming upon Jerusalem because they did not understand the things that would bring them peace. They sought their peace in other ways other than God. And so he prophesied their judgment. Quote, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is a prophecy of an historical event. The Roman legions in the year A.D. 70 invaded Jerusalem, besieged the city, and eventually invaded and destroyed the temple and leveled the city and did not leave one stone upon another. The Jewish historian Josephus says that a million people died in that attack. My Hebrew professor says there weren't a million people living in the area at the time, so suggested that might be an overestimation. However, we get the point. The judgment on Jerusalem in the New Testament 
followed exactly the pattern of the judgment that came on Jerusalem in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, after the people of God were unfaithful to his covenant, he sent prophets to preach to the people, calling them to repent, to bring them back to faithfulness. And when the people did not repent, persevered in idolatry and unfaithfulness, judgment came. And the final judgment of the Old Testament was in the person of the Babylonian army, which invaded Jerusalem in the year 586 B.C. and did the very same thing the Romans did, built a siege around the city and eventually leveled the temple and the city, and in that case carried a remnant of the people to exile in Babylon. The Gospels tell us how the people of Israel did not listen to the person that the prophecy of Deuteronomy 18 would call the prophet, with the consequent judgment at the hands of the Romans that's exactly parallel to the Old Testament. The difference in 70 AD was that this was the final judgment on Old Covenant Israel. This was the end of the Old Covenant age. We can look at judgment from two angles. First, we can say that the wrath of God came upon Israel for her disobedience. We are very uncomfortable with this language, especially in our day, partly because we're just uncomfortable with the idea of judgment, and partially because it suggests that maybe God had a temper tantrum, and that his anger is like our anger that we should live in fear of him because you never know when he might be having a bad day and decide to strike out at somebody in wrath. This kind of wrath and fear are precisely the characteristics of pagan worship that the Torah was written to overthrow. God's wrath is righteous. He does not have tantrums. He always acts in justice, and judgment comes only after every opportunity has been given for people to repent. There is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. But that's not the same as saying that every sinner will. But we can also look at judgment from the bottom up. God comes to save his people. He gives them forgiveness to save them from their sins. He gives them his law so they may avoid what is evil, pursue what is good, and experience God's joy and peace as a consequence of fruit of living within his will. He sends his people out to be witnesses and to tell and to show others about his kingdom. But if God's people do not confess their sins and turn from them, they cannot experience his forgiveness. If they do not begin to live according to his law, they cannot avoid evil and produce good in their lives. If they will not be faithful witnesses for him, he will find others who will. A man can't be saved from the quicksand if he won't grab the rope. A woman can't forever avoid the dangers of the water if she won't learn how to swim. The boss won't forever let us represent the company unless we do it faithfully. Judgment is not an arbitrary verdict rendered capriciously by God in an angry moment. 
it is the natural consequence of rejecting God's provision for salvation. Salvation is an organic living reality. As we live in Christ, in the experience of his grace and forgiveness, we are saved from the judgment and the guilt that comes upon us for sin. As we worship, love, and obey God, and practice love and charity with our neighbors, we live within the confines of God's protection, safe from the temptations and accusations of the evil one. We cannot neglect repentance, faith, and amendment of life, the things that save us from sin and be saved from sin. If we do neglect God's means of salvation and experience the natural consequences of our neglect, we can say that God judged us, or we can say that we refuse to accept the love and grace of God that would have saved us from judgment. This takes us back to our gospel story and our connection to it. What Jesus did in our gospel at the end of the story is sometimes called the, quote, cleansing of the temple. N.T. Wright points out that this is inaccurate, that the temple wasn't cleansed at all. Nothing was better about it after Jesus left. Rather, he suggests that what Jesus did was to mark it for destruction, to indicate that its services were no longer to be rendered. Its sacrifices would soon be replaced by the cross, and it would be removed from service by the Romans. But let's step back for a minute and reflect on what is really happening in the gospel. The temple was the authorized place where God was worshipped. In the temple, sacrifices were offered to God in accordance with what was prescribed in the Torah. Priests came daily and offered the daily sacrifice. They worshipped God, who was behind the veil in the Holy of Holies. They wanted the Lord to accept their sacrifices, forgive them, and come and save them. But wait. On this day, the Lord is not behind the veil. He is in the courtyard, turning over tables, because he's not happy with their behavior. But even though the Lord, who they are worshiping in the temple, is standing behind them in the courtyard, they don't recognize him. They are saying prayers and offering sacrifice to God, while at the same time rejecting the word made flesh who is in their midst. The Eucharist is the perpetuation by the church of this temple worship. Here we offer and present before God perpetually the one sufficient sacrifice that replaced the temple sacrifices. We come to the Father through the sacrifice of the Son in the Spirit. Or do we? Can we see the dangers uh, that might accrue to our worship that are connected to our gospel story? Can we see how we might, as the royal priesthood of God, come to offer sacrifice and praise to God while at the same time ignoring the will and word of God in our lives. Our liturgy follows the pattern of Palm Sunday, the whole entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, 
is, is informative of our liturgical action. In the liturgy, just as Jesus on Palm Sunday came to Jerusalem, so in the liturgy he comes to the new Jerusalem, to us, to his body, in whom he dwells, to the Spirit. We welcome Jesus in the liturgy in the same way that the Palm Sunday crowd welcomed him. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. He comes to us to save us from our sins by forgiving us. He comes to us to dwell in us through the Spirit and in the Spirit lead us out in a new behavior that will save us from the future consequences of unfaithful behavior. He sends us out to do good works and to be witnesses of his kingdom. We receive all that he comes to give us through repentance and faith and our desire to receive him and allow him to change us and allow him to lead us into a new way of life. This is all dress rehearsal. We shall come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. His coming again at the end of time will complete the salvation he is working in us now as he comes to us continually in the sacrament and in our lives of prayer. He is working in us now to root out sin and plant new life and virtue to the Spirit. He will come again in glory to finish this job. His coming in glory will lamentably reveal those in whom he is not working, those who name his name but do not receive him by faith and do not do his will. Biblical stories of judgment remind us that salvation is a real thing, that there is something to be saved from, which means also that there is a possibility of not being saved. The point of these is not to make us live in fear. Jesus comes to save us. He's coming today to save us from sin and judgment. The point is to exhort us to faith and faithfulness, to remind us that we are engaged in real things here. So let us receive Jesus now with repentance, faith, and amendment of life. Let us understand the things that make for peace in our lives. Let us know the day of our visitation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.